Hello! <laughs> I would like to start. My name is Cedric. Um, I would like to start by sharing the Navajo traditional greeting. Many Diné people have done generations before me. So here it goes. I'm kind of rough on it. So that translated means, hello my friends and family, my name is Cedric Quotero. Uh, I am born for the Towering House Clan, born to the Water's Edge Clan. My maternal grandfather is of the Meadow People Clan, and my paternal grandfather is of the Black Sheepwood Clan. I currently live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I grew up and I'm from uh, Tahajli, New Mexico. Thank you. So, five years ago, I would have never thought that I would be standing up here representing my cultural perspective the way I am today. I grew up running from my culture because I thought that abandoning my heritage was what I must do to be deemed valuable both in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God. This misrepresented sense of value did not start with me. It started many generations ago when my native ancestors were deemed heathenous, savage, underdeveloped, and uneducated instead of creative, valuable, personable, and patient. The habits of culture I share with you today are a part of an incomplete painting. Because of the trauma my family has gone through for generations, I stand here in a dark room, searching for answers and clues that might bring more light into how the Diné people have thought and lived before me. I'm still learning and don't know everything. I cannot say I represent every Navajo person you'll ever meet, nor do I represent every Native American person you'll ever meet, nor will I represent every person of color you'll ever meet. Yes, I am a friend who is all these things and might relate to many people in these communities, but please, if there's anything that you take from what we say today, understand the deep value of sitting down with someone in a different culture to merely listen and seek understanding, not to interject opinion nor advice, but to grow in empathy and love. In the past few difficult years of reclaiming my own culture and actively seeking the perspective of others, I have found no greater skill. So today, I would like to highlight four different values that I think uh, make Native people unique when compared to the many middle-class white American Christian households, a community that I would say make up most of Christchurch. The first is an acknowledgement for the land. So I have found that Native people more often recognize nature and land as a part of creation with a history and relationship with creator. Fun fact, the land that we stand or sit on today in Albuquerque, New Mexico was originally hosted by the Sandia Pueblo people. And for the land my tribe hosts, where the Navajo Nation is, uh, we live within what we traditionally call the four sacred mountains, which are Blanca Peak, Mount Taylor, the San Francisco Peaks, and Mount Hesperus. We call them sacred because we traditionally believe that there is protection for Diné people given especially by Creator. We like to remember that there is not only a relationship between man and Creator, but also with Creator and the land. Native people also just like to garden. So. <laughs> well, the second thing I would like to highlight is a high regard for sharing and seeking honor. Many Native people have this value because they've historically experienced bad interactions with 
Europeans and Spaniards where uh, conversations surrounding land and resources lack good relationship and respect. And to counteract these bad experiences, many Native people choose uh, to seek relationship and respect in everything they do. Permission is key. Whether it be hosting an event or asking someone to be an event speaker, if the Native person doesn't really know the person that they are seeking permission from, uh, they often bring gifts and spend hours sharing stories before they ask for whatever they're seeking. Words and structures non-Native people might use for efficiency might be seen as impersonal and rude. Interrupting others, even in casual conversation, is often uh, something Native people aren't comfortable with. Also, honor takes time. So Native people might take a bit longer to become comfortable with you, but there's usually a lot of care and thought the person is considering when making new friends. But have patience, because when permission and honor are given, loyalty is often stronger and more sincere. At that point, you're like family. The third thing I'd like to point out is deep prayer. I've never met a, a Native person who is uncomfortable with prayer. Prayer to Creator has been important and essential to many tribes for centuries, and that history has made Native people more comfortable with talking to and giving honor to Creator. However, it is important to mention that many Native people still do not acknowledge Jesus nor the Holy Spirit in their prayers. But if they did, watch out, Satan. The fourth and final thing I'd like to point out is uh, completionist time orientation. So the last one is probably the most different uh, when compared to Christ Church's culture. Native people often choose to let an event or meeting go over time because their hope is to complete what is at hand instead of cutting the meeting short to be on time for the next one. Which means Native people often show up later to things. But they are also the ones who are willing to stay after the event is over, whether to chat or to help clean up. In the college ministry I work for, when interacting with Native students, we aren't too concerned if they show up 10 or 15 minutes late. However, we are concerned when they leave on time. And those that we see linger a long while after the meeting is over, we appreciate deeply and highly consider for leadership. Because to us, they are the ones who want to be there and help grow the community. During Christ Church's membership class last November, the one that I was a part of, I noticed a suggestion for members to be on time. I pointed this out to Clint, who is doing my membership interview, um, and suggested that we change the line to be on time and or stay late to account for those who have a different time orientation. And he listened, so Christ Church is uh, getting there, but and I'm also thankful for um, having pastors, cool pastors that are willing to listen to that sort of thing. Uh, to close, I would like to thank Christ Church, uh, all of the members, also the guests, uh, the deacons, the elders, and the staff for letting me speak today. Uh, I'd also like to thank First United Methodist. I don't know if there's anyone here from First United Methodist, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Um, after being invited to speak by Pastor Clint and by Mr. M, uh, I started considering what I could contribute to the conversation of culturality awareness and its importance in the church. Discouraging thoughts quickly crept in as I questioned the value of my perspective. I don't feel like I know enough about my native culture. I might not have anything worth contributing, etc., etc. However, after much thought and prayer, I realized that sharing the perspective of my culture could actually be an invitation from the Holy Spirit to tear down some of these discouraging thoughts that I think come from the enemy. Native people have historically and traumatically been pushed aside, silenced, and forgotten, which has been a regular contributor of my own and many other Native people's thoughts about their own inadequacy and worthlessness. But through the grace of God and the wisdom of your elders, Christ Church has been hard at work in healing that trauma and tearing down these lies of inadequacy by remembering me, a Native person, welcoming me and encouraging me to share my story. 
With Creator You, we are all redeeming the value of life through our acts of listening and sharing. Take heart and be patient because I think Jesus wants to use these conversations for his amazing glory. May Creator bless you and your families. Thanks so much, Cedric. Um, originally, the plan was to be more on time, to stop, to give you a break, and then to keep going. What we're going to do instead is plow through our breaks, but also open it up that if anybody needs to get up, get more coffee, get water, go to the bathroom, feel free to do that as I talk. I'm not going to be offended if you do that. We also don't want everybody to go and then have a total bottleneck. Um, at the bathrooms and spend all of our time waiting. Um, bonus points if you get up, go somewhere, and then come and sit down at a different table and freak everybody out and, and change things up like we want, kind of wanted you to. As we do get going, though, I do have another poll for you guys. Um, I've sent that out to some of you guys. If you could share that, either the code or the address, similar to the first one, except this one might be a little more... Um, attacking in uh, Nathan's word you might feel a little bit awkward having to choose some of these options but we're gonna use that to kind of get us going in our conversation so scan the code um, guys who have the code send it to other people if you need to or you can go to ahaslides.com slash culturality without any vowels c-l-t-r-l-t-y all right, it looks like you guys are finishing up, or at least you've made good enough progress for me to start talking about the results here. So even split on that first one, choosing your preferred depiction of Jesus, even split between the super classic mosaic looking one and the little bit more interpretive black and white one. When we look at film depictions, uh, much higher choice of um, the more uh, recent, maybe a little bit more historically accurate depiction that we have there. Um, that one might be from The Chosen. Yeah? That's probably why you guys picked it. All right. Even split between statue of Jesus with a thing around his head and then like the, the one where he's wearing the red, um, red outfit that they make a meme out of with him doing this with his heart showing. All right. As far as crosses are concerned, we went with the Santa Fe San Miguel steeple there. That was not surprising. All right, let's talk about nativities. Kind of the classic one, but it's got it's got some uh, color to it. No, only one person went with that minimalist one. I thought some of you guys would want that instead. All right, let's talk about church building. The chapel in the woods got the vast majority of you guys. Preferred worship setting, um, either the like written collective style by the campfire or the people standing in the pews <laughs> like that. Uh, that's actually a picture from a Church of Christ with no no instruments, no singing or anything. So some of you guys might need to get a little more excited during your worship times. Uh, nothing against our Church of Christ brothers and sisters, but all right. So. <clears throat> As you guys were choosing depictions of Jesus, worship settings, church buildings, we could ask a few questions. Are there right answers? 
You don't have to answer, just think. Why did you choose what you chose? To yourself, think about why did I have a, an aversion to that one and an affinity for that one? What is the aim of these depictions? Is our goal historically accurate representations of a first century Jewish man or culturally expressive representations of the savior of all peoples? Are we surprised when people in an African village come up with a different image of Jesus in their minds than people who have a lot of Western European, sorry, Eastern European, Western European influence have in their depictions? Is there an aversion that rises up in us whenever we see a different depiction than what we're used to? Or a different worship setting than what we're used to? Is there anything about these depictions that offends you? Something to think about. And can you imagine ways in which any of these depictions would be offensive to others? We're going to start moving away from first culture, even though you might be like, Dude, I filled out this little mapping thing, and I still don't even know what's going on with that, and I wanted to talk about it, and you're just hustling along. It's okay. As we move into second, we're going to take what we know about ourselves, and again, this is just the start of the conversation that can hopefully continue later, and we're going to start thinking about what do we do whenever we interact with second culture or a, a culture coming on from the, from the outside, from somebody else. I want to give you guys another metaphor to think about. Um, anybody like to go to the pet store and watch the fish in the tanks? Even though you don't want to buy, you just go and walk around? Alright, Cedric, cool. <laughs> um, so let's think about that. We're in the pet store. There's all these different fish tanks. This is different than the aquarium, right? Separated types of fish for the ability to purchase them. But they also a lot of times have climatized water or types of water. You can't just take this fish and throw it in with this one. They might eat each other. Um, they might die because of the, the water settings, the, uh, the salinity of it, the temperature of it. Transferring a fish from one to the other is not that simple. Even whenever you buy a fish, I've never bought a fish, but when you buy a fish, they put it in its own water, put it in a little baggie. Hopefully, um, like in Finding Nemo, nobody shakes the bag and kills the fishy, and you put it in its bag in the other fish tank and let it get climatized before you release it. Transfer is not very simple. So as we turn our focus to think about others, let's consider ourselves as pet store fish. Okay, transfers between species or between um, climates, environments are sometimes troublesome. Maybe we wish we could be part of a large, manicured, calculated, cared for aquarium display. Maybe we long for the ocean with its beautiful reefs and amazing ecosystems. But the reality is that we are stuck at P. Sherman 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Finding Nemo reference that you guys apparently did not get. All right. So as we get into this, as we think about second culture, let's consider our motivations. We're going to look at uh, motivations and some means, and then we're going to illustrate it. All right, so motivations. We want to operate from a position of grace, not guilt. Let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says this, Now I never rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief 
led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Godly grief, godly grief excuse me, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. We're operating from a position of grace, not a position of guilt. As Christians, this is our calling. We don't want worldly grief that creates regret. We want godly grief that leads to repentance. Again, the problem is sin. The need is the gospel. Pride needs to be repented of, not culture per se. If there is sin, if there is pride, or if we're prideful about our culture, then there's room for repentance. But non-moral generalities are not the things that we need to repent of. We need to address sin in our hearts. But we do this from a position of grace in Christ. The question would be, are we properly calibrated to be able to discern what is idolatry and what are vices from the flesh, or even systemic problems that are rooted in selfish behavior, and over here, what is culturality? Are we calibrated to discern between those things, between sin and between cultural makeup? Are we operating from a perspective of sinners saved by grace, functioning out of grace, free from the guilt of sin? Or are we operating from the perspective of the world and its theories? Fundamentally, do we function as if Christ has cleared our guilt and imputed his righteousness to us? Or do we function as if the world is right and it has imposed its guilt on us? Do we interact with others from an overflow of grace coming from a good God of all creation? So as we engage with others and as we deal with even our own culturality, let's do it from a position of grace that's been wrought within us and not guilt being put on from the outside world. Our second motivation would be love of neighbor. You guys remember what I read earlier on, the great commandment. <clears throat> love the Lord your God with your whole self. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, we're talking about putting tools in our toolkit. We often practice skill development in other areas of the Christian life. Think about Bible study. Think about discipleship tools, developing our theology, being able to share the gospel well. Now, we don't want to have an overly siloed, compartmentalized view of the Christian life. But I'm asking, is there maybe room for development of this area as well. Um, right, we don't want to think that, you know, as if knowing how to rightly divide the word is not a way by which we can love our listening neighbor. Of course it is. But let's not overlook a uniquely Christian area for skill development. To put it simply, or maybe a little bit more like Ephesians 4, let's think about how we could be equipped for the ministry of the saints, for loving others in this area. As we do this, we love not only our neighbor, but our neighbor creating God, right? That's the first part, the main part of the great commandment. We don't skip loving God with our whole self to loving neighbors 
as ourselves without him. It says to love the Lord your God. So in the same way that the diversity, intricacy, and beauty of inanimate creation can stir up in us awe and worship, anybody out there love being at a beach or out in the mountains? Yes, a lot of head nods. In the same way that that stirs something up in us, how much even more so should those same traits of diversity, intricacy, and beauty in animate creation, in souled creation, stir up in us a love and a joy and an awe of our God among image bearers. I want to get a little help from Shai Lin. He has a children's book and a song that I will quote from now, but without the same rhythmic abilities. Though we all have a different story, God made me and you. For our joy and for his glory, God made me and you. Just as two snowflakes are never the same, every person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short, dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, God's beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head, whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray, or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race, we should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yep, God made me and you. Let's take this love of neighbors and the neighbor creating God a step further. Acts 17, 24-26, as Paul is preaching at the Areopagus. The God who made the world and everything in it, the being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from the one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And then interestingly, he then goes on to quote their poets, right? Cultural icons, per se, aspects of culture before he proclaims the resurrection. God has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of mankind's dwelling places. He is both the creator and the conductor. It's not only that God has created diverse humanity, he has sovereignly overseen and orchestrated the space and time allotments of humanity, which over the course of history provide the environments for the cultivation of life patterns. So we love our neighbor, but we also love, as we do that together, we love the neighbor originator, the neighbor manipulator, the neighbor organizer, God himself. Another motivation would be body life. 1 Corinthians 12. 12 through 14. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We see put together in the same passage unity and diversity. One body. Many members, one Christ, 
many people, one spirit, different kinds of ethnicity and socioeconomic status. Now, the explicit issue at hand is spiritual gifts. I'm aware of that. But the underlying issue is unity and identity. The Corinthians' problem with spiritual gifts comes back to their unity and identity in Christ. And the body metaphor is what Paul uses to make this very clear. So, again, we said that this is not a secular, quote-unquote, enterprise. This is a spiritual enterprise. Why? Because corporate integrity, playground harmony, neighborhood peace, social and economic justice, these are all good aims, but the world has neither the grounding truth of the gospel, the blood of Christ, the glorious aim of perfected eternity, the bliss of Christ, nor the in-between reality of the church, the body of Christ, to bring about its aims. But brothers and sisters, we do. Let's look at those around us as either current or potential members of our body. As Nathan reminded us, diversity and unity are not ends in and of themselves. They are a means of enjoying and exclaiming the glory of Christ. Let me try to carefully make a parallel. You don't adopt a child to increase your diversity ratio. You do it because of an overflow of love. So diversity and unity should be the natural outworkings of the Spirit moving in our lives. Yes, in giftings, in, in the spiritual gifts, explicit issue, but also in the underlying Jew-Greek slave-free dynamics. So those are some of our motivations. Grace over guilt, love of neighbor and the neighbor-creating God, and body life, our aim being the church to the glory of Christ. That's motivations. Let's talk a little bit about means. First of all, like we already started with our first culture, you should know yourself. Know yourself first. Uh, I came up with a little acronym. Maybe it'll stick. Maybe it'll seem super cheesy. SPEC. Right? So Jesus says, before you go and take the log out of your brother's eye, take the, the, sorry, before you go and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your eye. Right? So let's think about the, the speck per se. Not drawing a direct parallel with that, but just kind of an idea that came to my head. So we start with scripture. S. Biblical anthropology. We move to prayer, inviting God to search and to know us and communicating with him what we are wrestling with. Then e-evaluation in honesty and humility, right? As you were doing your questionnaire, maybe you're looking, you're like, um, I feel like I should say that, but honestly, I feel, I feel this way. You're evaluating yourself. You want to be honest and humble. And then a concentration C on 
both sin issues, but then also potential points of friction with others and dealing with that. And then K, we keep, we persevere in our awareness. This is not a, I attended a Saturday seminar, therefore I learned what it means to be more woke and now I am good. That box is checked off. No, it is to persevere in your awareness and to recognize the reality of changes, both in yourself, in your congregation, and in others that you meet. We're always changing. Next, so first know yourself. Next, be aware. The aim is not omniscience. It's just not overlooking as much, right? You filled out your little thing. You're looking holistic, dichotomistic, uh, crisis, non-crisis. What in the world is this guy talking about? We can have conversations about what those different things mean. I wish we had more time to do that. But the aim is not to know yourself perfectly, not to say, yes, I am a 3.2 on the whatever scale. No, or that person's this. Or to know every culture in the world. No, that's not the aim. It's just to not overlook as much as we might normally. So hopefully we're accomplishing that a little bit today. We will always have new neighbors and the world is always changing. So we need to constantly be aware. At the same time, as we're aware of cultural tendencies, we don't assume about people, right? The whole point of the distinctions that we're making today, the whole point of culturality is to show that there are nuances and differences between culture, worldview, personality, and the ways in which those elements shape persons as individuals and people groups collectively. I want to tell you about two dinners I attended. Same people, relatively same socioeconomic status. Dinner number one, probably one that you would be fairly comfortable with, uh, the majority of you being Americans. Walk in, everything is nice and put together. The table is set, it's ready. There are already appetizers laid out for us. The kids come, they play with the other kids. The dad is even willing to get down on the floor and put together toys and play trains and do things like that. We go, we sit down, everything is nice and prepared. It's ready, it's served, it's, we eat, we have conversation at the table, we clean it up, we go on with the rest of our evening. Dinner number two. We come in, nothing is ready. We walk into chaos. The men go out on the balcony so that our friend can smoke and we spend time chatting while the women go to the kitchen to start getting the food ready and deal with kids who are running around without really any sort of activity to occupy them. Probably an hour, hour and a half later, the men are called in from the balcony. We all sit on the floor, lay down a, a rug, and food is put on the floor, and we collectively eat together from this shared meal, trying to keep kids from getting up and walking across the living room picnic. Two dinners, same people. Same Central Asian people group, same city, same socioeconomic status, basically, but two very different experiences. I don't walk in to dinner one assuming it's going to be like dinner two. I don't walk into dinner two assuming that it should be like dinner one. 
So we don't stereotype. We don't assume uh, things about people and said we should assume the posture of learner, not expert. Again, the goal is not omniscience. And then we get to know these individuals. There's a three-legged stool. This one's four, so I can't use that. Of ethnographic research. Um, you have <clears throat> bibliographic research, so like studying, but even what we're doing today, like becoming more aware about realities, studying ahead of time. And then you have observation, an interview, you're, you're watching, and you're maybe asking questions, and then finally you actually have participation. I think we can do that in a more stripped down, less academic sounding way, right? Um, learning beforehand, watching without being creepy, asking questions without interrogating, and then joining in without being inappropriate. Let's remember that this is how children learn. We forget that. That's what kids do. They, they watch, they ask a billion questions, and they imitate. It's a natural way in which we can learn. Let's not forget that. Let's not just get stuck at observation, but let's also not be too prone to participate without taking time to learn. After we've known ourselves, we're, we're aware of issues, we're not assuming, we're getting to know the person or people, then we patiently, we drive down deep. That's a little bit of what the, the interviews today are, are doing. They're pulling the curtain back a bit. They're speeding that process up for you, right? This would often take a lot of time to get to know someone, to get to hear their insights in our normal interactions. I had lunch with Cedric the other day. We did not get into any of the issues that he shared with us today, right? It takes time. We have to be patient. But we can think of this relational depth as returns on investments, right? The more you deposit, the more expansive your portfolio, the more potential there is in the long game for relational benefit. Especially for culturality profiles that are more indirect or they avoid vulnerability, or maybe they're more private, they're not going to lend to a quick process. But let's also not miss the fact that even resistance is still communicating something. We're always communicating something. And then finally, we would rinse and repeat. Right? We learn, we research, we, we introspect, we grow, we improve. Right? In the same way that we shouldn't just check the box in other areas of the life of a believer. Right? I learned theology. Check. I learned how to share the good news of Christ. Check. In the same way that we wouldn't do that, let's remember that this is a developing and repeated process. All right, so I asked you in the poll to look at various uh, depictions of Jesus, representations of him and his church. I now want to tell you guys about a particular basilica. I sent out a picture of the slide I wanted to show you. Some people around the tables hopefully have that or can throw it around to others, but I want to tell you about this. There's a basilica in Nazareth. It's called the Basilica of Annunciation. So right at the time when Gabriel came and announced to the Virgin Mary about the Christ child. It is full 
of beautiful mosaics and art representing dozens of countries. If you don't want to look at the slide, just Google images Basilica of Annunciation and they'll come up. So I had in mind showing you, um, I, I grabbed some Slovenia, uh, Greece, Japan, Thailand, Chile, and Ethiopia. Just random ones that I kind of liked what they looked like and gave us some of a diverse picture. Think about it. A church building with its aim of showing that in all these places where there is knowledge of Mary and the announcement to her about the Christ child, this is how these people are thinking of that. This is how these people are thinking about that. This is how these people are thinking about that. And in a way that I think should not surprise us, they're not all the same. They're not all a historically accurate picture of a first century Jewish woman. They are reflective of what they know as themselves, what they look like. And I fear that we might trade that beauty and that diversity and that color instead for the little black and white coloring book version of Mary. We might want to hold on to that. Or we might want to color it the way that we feel good about it, rather than opening ourselves up to the beauty that's around us. A theologian named Richard Langer talks about hermit crab theology, about jamming Jesus into our pre-existing ideologies. We want to be careful about that. Another illustration other than the coloring book. So are we, are we settling for this, this blank, black and white coloring book when beautiful mosaics are out there waiting for us to experience? As we talk about actually connecting with people on the second culture level, we can think about bridge building and contextualization. And I want us to do this under the umbrella of priesthood, priestly effort. So what's a bridge? A bridge is something that connects two points separated by a chasm they share a common material to get themselves together. All right? When we come to deal with a bridge, when we come to build a bridge, we don't go, ah, chasm, distance. Um, we need to somehow move the earth to join together, right? We say we need to get from point A to point B. The distance is important. The distance is real. The topography is real. We need to recognize that. But is there a way in which we can find a point of common shared material to hopefully allow for interaction? Let's think about contextualization. This is something we all do all the time. I'm speaking right now in English in front of a podium. We wanted to have digital expression. We're doing all this stuff with QR codes and computers and all the bells and whistles, right? This is contextual. This is a contextualized message. It's something that God did in condescending to use, that condescending to us in the incarnation and in the inspiration of Scripture. What is contextualization? It's just making the message more at home in a given setting. So bridge building, contextualization, now priesthood of all believers. 
In the Protestant Reformation, the priesthood of all believers was a big deal, right? Really shook things up. The idea there being that there is no special class who get to mediate grace or interpret scripture, but instead all disciples get to share in Christ's priesthood by nature of union with him via the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we can take that concept of being priests united with Christ and apply it to our bridge building and to our contextualization and to our neighborly love. We are walking around as tabernacles. We carry the Spirit of God within us. And so if we can do things to remove stumbling blocks for that true, unchanging, explicit gospel to then be able to be shared with others, to invite them into our body life, I think we're doing a priestly effort. We are mediating between cultures. We are mediating between God and those around us. What a glorious, glorious privilege. Think back to some of those scenarios we shared at the beginning. Some of those situations. And ask yourself, how might we in a priestly way be able to carry the Spirit to these people?